This is an ABC podcast. The deeper level of resistance around coaching is the fact that you're actually in the act of empowering somebody, but that means giving up power and giving up control. Hello, I'm Lisa Leong. That's Michael Bungay-Stania, and he knows a thing or two about what it takes to be a great coach. Michael was named world's number one thought leader in coaching, and his book, The Coaching Habit, is a bestseller. But Michael's not talking about sporting coaches. He's actually talking about coaching at work, something he reckons we should all be doing, but it's hard to get right. So today on This Working Life, we're revisiting our conversation with Michael. A coach in sport is often a master advice giver. Mm-hmm. And that's in direct opposition to how you want to show up being more coach-like in the working place because here's my definition of, of coaching. Can you stay curious a little bit longer? Can you rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly? Because in work, most people are advice-giving maniacs. And actually, <laughs> that doesn't serve them that well. It doesn't serve the organization that well. It doesn't serve the people that they lead and manage and influence that well. So the coach doesn't need to be the person who knows the most either then? Well, you can't be the person who knows the most these days. It's ridiculous to believe that you could somehow know all the answers to all the problems that's going on. It's delusional. There is a place for advice. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying never give advice. That would be a a silly statement to make. But if you're a leader, if you're trying to help you perform better, if you help your team perform better, it's about doing a couple of things. It's figuring out what the right challenge is to work on. And you can do that as a coach, which is like, let's make sure we're focused on what matters. And it's also about empowering your people so they feel smarter and more autonomous and more self-sufficient and more creative. And you don't do that when you give advice and you do do that when you ask good questions. So who should be a coach uh, the way you would define it in the workplace? I I reckon if you are a human being who interacts with other human beings, there's a place for being curious a little bit longer. And, you know, I I get caught up a little bit on the label of are you a coach or not? Mm. I'm like, let's put that aside. Don't don't be a coach. Be you who's more coach-like. I mean, the word coach comes with a bunch of baggage. You know, some people have been vaguely traumatized by life coaches <laughs> with, you know, too much incense and a, scarves and stuff. And, you know, I was a life coach myself at this stage. Ah. Uh, you know, sports coaches can traumatize. Some people have been coached out of their last job. So, you know, they were fired under the guise of coaching. So there's a, a way that coach can come with a bit too much baggage and create resistance. But if you say to people, look, I just want you to be more coach-like, then that opens up all sorts of possibilities. I like that coach-like, so maybe coach as a verb rather than yeah, a noun. Exactly, a li- rather you got than it. a label. Yeah. You st- studied law, and then you were a Rhodes Scholar. All true. <laughs> I also have am a reform lawyer. So, what what attracted you about coaching? Moving into that. <laughs> well, my legal career never quite took off. I finished law school being sued by one of my law school lecturers for defamation. So, wow. And what, I, what I'd actually realized is that as a teenager at high school in Canberra, I spent a lot of time with other angsty teenage friends, kind of listening to them, you know, their tales of woe, because as a teenager, that's, that's your life, and going, look, I'm pretty good at listening, but I don't know what I'm doing And so when I went to university at ANU, I joined the telephone crisis hotline, you know, youth suicide, and Mm. learned some of the basics around how to ask a good question, how to stay curious, how to get a little deeper than the first thing that they talk about. 
And that continued through university in Australia. And then when I won the Rhodes Scholarship over in Oxford, in England, I started to notice the rise of coaching on the West Coast of the US in California. And of course, because I'm in England, everyone's like, it's California, so they're probably <laughs> nuts. You know, but I was like, okay, there's something interesting here. And then when I moved from England to Boston for my, for my work at the time, I hired my first coach because I'm like, let's, let's test this out. Yeah, and I started, what is it? Yeah. Yeah, it's mm. like I, I read a bit about it, but what's it like to actually be coached? And I started reframing my relationship with the clients and people I was working with as a coaching relationship. And that's kind of what got me started. So when somebody's performing that role well, what mm. type of difference does it make then, Michael? Well, I think it can have an impact in two places, the two important places for work. One is on productivity and impact. If you're coaching well, you can bring a real focus to figure out what the real challenge is and make sure that you and your people are working on the stuff that actually matters. Because in many organizations, people are working really hard, coming up with great ideas, spending time and money and resources to solve the wrong problem because we get seduced into thinking that the first challenge that shows up is the real challenge. And honestly, it almost never is. So there's a way that productivity goes up and impact goes up because you increase focus. Secondly, engagement and the growth of your people go up because what you find is that people are encouraged to step forward, take control, be autonomous, be creative, and you find that you're growing your people and you're growing your results. And that's, that's the two drivers for a successful organization, good people doing good work. You have a list of seven questions that you I say are the important ones. Can you run me through them, please? Sure. So we start off with a kickstart question. Here's the deal. One of my fundamental beliefs is that for coaching to work in an organizational life, you have to overcome the biggest barrier, which is people going, I don't have time for this stuff. I'm too busy. I'm overcommitted. I'm overwhelmed. I can't add a 30-minute or a 40-minute or an hour-long coaching conversation with my people to my life. That's impossible. And that's true. Because if you think that's what coaching is, it's never going to take off. My belief is if you can't coach in 10 minutes or less, you don't have time to coach. So reframe what coaching is as a fast, everyday conversation. And that right. first question, the kickstart question, uh -huh. does that. The kickstart question, Lisa, what's on your mind? And the power of this question is it's open. I mean, it's saying to you, Lisa, you know, tell me, you, you decide what this conversation's about. But it says, don't tell me everything, Lisa. I don't want to hear about everything you've done all day. I want to hear what you're excited about or worried about or anxious about. It accelerates the conversation into something important. Then we've got the focus question. The focus question is, what's the real challenge here for you? And the way that's created, written, spoken, actually really matters. Because if I was to say to you, Lisa, hey, what's the challenge here? That's, that's an okay question, but it's a little flabby you're likely to get a, almost a restatement of what you've already heard. Mm. When I say, but, okay, what's the real challenge here? Now you're saying, you know, you can feel the difference. You can say, hey, there's, there's other things going on. If you had to pick the thing that is most important, what's that? Mm. But there's magic when you add for you. What's the real challenge here for you? Because the spotlight swings from the challenge to the person working on the challenge. Beautiful. Number three best coaching question in the world. And the question is, and what else? 
Now, here's the thing. I, I, you know, I teach this stuff all around the world. I've said and what else in front of hundreds of thousands of people these days. And there's always a slight moment of anticlimax when I go, it's the best coaching question in the world. Oh, it's and what else? But here's the brilliance of and what else. First of all, it has an insight that the first answer somebody gives you is never the only answer. And it's rarely the best answer. I mean, I'm sure you know that as a journalist, which is their first answer is just their first answer. It's not the answer. The second thing that's powerful about and what else is that it's a self-management tool. Because it turns out that the challenge of changing your behavior to be more coach-like is really about one thing. It's about taming your advice monster. <laughs> because we all have this monster inside us. Somebody starts talking... And even though they're talking about a complex human interaction with people you don't really know, about a context you don't fully understand, maybe in a culture, organizational culture you haven't fully grasped, after about 10 seconds, you're like, okay, I think I've got some ideas here. I think I know what I want to tell you. And we're just trying to slow down the rush to action and advice giving. And, and what else is a powerful self-management tool to slow down that rush. Isn't it incredible how such simple... Um, phrases or questions can open that up, just going that yeah. little bit deeper. Here's at the heart of this shift of behavior. The tools are easy. Like I'm giving you the seven questions. Yeah. They're, 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 five, they're five words or less each. So we're talking you know, 35 words in total here. And, you know, you can write these down, stick them up on a wall. The, the deeper challenge is that shift in behavior. How do you not leap in? How do you tame your advice monster? How do you empower somebody because the deeper level of resistance around coaching is the fact that you're actually in the act of empowering somebody, but that means giving up power and giving up control. Because if I'm in a conversation with you and I'm telling you some great advice, ah, it feels great. <laughs> Honestly, I'm the smart person. I'm controlling the conversation. I'm clearly adding value. So I'm, you know, I'm justifying my salary. I've got the high status in this relationship. It is a good place to be, even though you're probably offering up slightly useless advice to solve the wrong problem. Still, I mean, you're like, it's a minor detail. I'm feeling good about myself. <laughs> If you're yes. willing to kind of step into this place of servant leadership where you're like, I'm going to feel uncomfortable because when I ask a question, there's far less certainty. It's a bit ambiguous. Was that a good question? It's a bit uncertain. What are they going to say? What if they come up with some crazy answer that I don't understand? What if they come up with an answer that I just don't agree with? But that willingness to sit in that place of discomfort and uncertainty so that other person can take ownership can be empowered, can feel autonomous, that's leadership. So we're about halfway through Michael's seven essential coaching questions. If you need to revise, check out our show notes in your podcast app. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe so you never miss another episode. Now, ready for number four, let's go. Number four, the foundation question. What do you want? Now, it's a question that you've got to get the tone right, but we call it the foundation question because it helps you get to the heart of what's really going on, what they really want. When you know what you want, that's a foundation, a platform for action. Number five, mm. the strategic question. If you're going to say yes to this, what must you say no to? Because in our organizational lives, this is what strategy is. It's about choice. 
And honestly, we are terrible at saying no to stuff in most of our organizational interactions. That's why we all feel overwhelmed and exhausted and stretched too many ways. It's because we're not courageous enough to say no. If you're going to say yes and mean it, you've got to ask what's the no that makes that yes, that commitment real. And that's what the strategic question is about. What are we up to now? Number six. (laughs) One of my favorite questions, it's the lazy question. Because the three principles I have for coaching, be lazy, be curious, be often. Being often is actually the most kind of radical of the three principles. It says every interaction in person, on the phone, by text, can be more coach-like because it's just about staying curious a little bit longer. But the lazy question, which sounds the most provocative, the principle, which sounds mm. the most provocative is, stop, stop solving everybody's work for them. Stop doing their work. Allow them to do their own work. Stop jumping in to fix it and solve it. So the lazy question is, so how can I help? Or a, a variation is, so what do you want from me? And now, it doesn't yeah. sound lazy because it sounds like you're asking mm. for more work coming at you. <laughs> that does. But what most people do, Lisa, is they go, I'm going to leap in and I'm just going to start the intervention because I've already figured out what you want. I haven't told you. I'm just going to start doing it. Right. And what you're doing is you're creating a little kind of tension, a little kind of hesitation before you leap in. Mm. And that question, the lazy question, what do you want or how can I help, comes with the caveat to say you get to say yes or no or maybe to whatever they say. You don't have to do what they want. And the seventh question, the final question, the learning question. If you buy into the idea that as a manager, a leader, a contributor, part of your job is to be a teacher so people get smarter and feel more autonomous and so on, you have to help people learn. But how do people learn? Well, it turns out they do not learn by you telling them stuff. I mean, you know that's true. (laughs) It goes in one ear, it goes out the other ear rapidly. People learn when they have a moment to reflect on what just happened. So the learning question is, so what was most useful or most valuable for you here? And you can add that onto the end of your formal one-to-ones, your informal conversations, your team meetings, your conversations with your boss, your peers, your team, your clients, your vendors. I mean, even as you hear this, for the people listening, as you listen to this conversation with Lisa and me, you know, what was most useful or most valuable for you from this conversation? And what you're going to find is by me asking that question and you answering it, this conversation immediately becomes more useful because now I'm forcing you to make the neural connections to extract the value and get smarter because of it. And you've laid out the seven questions. Does it always follow in that order? Actually, this is not a this is not a script. These are seven questions. You get to deploy one of them or two of them or, or three of them in any order that you want. What it does, though, is it says, look, actually, one of those questions will be the right one to use 80% of the time. You say that there are three vicious circles that keep managers and their teams stuck. What are they? Yeah, and I talk about these because you've got to have people feel the vicious circle. So they go, you're right. You know what? You're right. This part of my working life sucks a bit. Mm. I I should try and do something differently. So the three vicious circles. Number one, an over-dependent team. The more they come to you for advice 
the more you give them advice. Then the more you give them advice, the more they come to you for advice. And before you know it, even with the best of intentions, somehow you've created this team that's massively codependent on you, that aren't willing to take any risks, ideas, actions without your approval. They're frustrated because you're kind of holding them down. You're frustrated because you're the bottleneck to the Mm. system. It's just annoying for all people involved. So overdependent team, number one. Number two, a sense of overwhelm and Everybody's going to kind of uh, understand that one. The more that ends up on your plate, the more you lose focus. The more you lose focus, the more that ends up on your plate. And before you know it, this vicious circle leaves you in a state of kind of perpetual low-level anxiety. And then the third vicious circle is, is a sense of disconnect. And this is where you lose the kind of the why of the work, the purpose. You know, the, the less impact you have, the more you resign yourself, give up a little bit. The more you give up, the less impact you have. And it's just one of those ways where you just, it all becomes a bit un- dehumanizing. So how does being more coach-like interact with these three vicious circles? Yeah, I think coaching and being more coach-like is this kind of behavior, this leadership behavior that can break through all of these. Because the very act of coaching is about uh, empowering your team. So mm. you break that first one about an overdependent team. Because you're not answering so, all the time. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> they come to you and go, give me the answers. And you're like, I'm not going to give you the answer. What do you think the real challenge is for you? And they're like, oh, okay. And what else? And they're like, <laughs> oh, and suddenly they're doing their work and you're doing your work. So you break that circle. You know, the focus question, what's the real challenge here for you, is one of the ways that you deal with overwhelm. And you combine that with the strategic question. So if that's the real challenge, what do I want? And what if that's what I want, what am I going to say yes to and what am I going to say no to? Mm. And it allows you to have the courage and the focus to kind of target what's most important. And equally with that piece around the um, disconnect around the work that matters, Yes. this focus around, so what's the real challenge here for you? And that phrase for you is a way that you keep bringing the work back, not just to the work, but your engagement in the work. So you actually find some skin in the game there. The why. The why of the work, exactly. Simon Sinek would be proud of us. (laughs) Thank you so much. My pleasure, Lisa. Michael Bungay-Stania. And Michael is a founder of Box of Crayons, a company that champions coaching for leadership development and culture change. You're listening to This Working Life on ABC Radio National. I'm Lisa Leong, today revisiting two of our most popular interviews. Now, one of the least favourite days of the working year is that of the performance review. You may feel they are maybe futile at best and damaging at worst if not done properly. So I asked people management specialist, Karen Gately, how we can get the most out of our performance reviews. I would start talking to your boss about it well before the actual appraisal date. You know, if they're not creating that rhythm for you to have regular conversations about expectations and progress and, you know, what you can expect when appraisal time comes around, then create that for yourself. Put put time in their diary to sit down on a very regular basis and ask the question, how am I tracking? Is there any feedback you would give me to help me to be more on track, whatever the case may be? So I guess my, my number one bit of advice around that is to take ownership for it. You know, we can sit there and say, my employer should do this better. My Mm. boss should be a coach. But if they're not, step up and, and take the reins and create the opportunity for you to get the feedback you need. 
And then, you know, for the actual performance review meeting itself, yep. you know, again, take the time to reflect on what did we write down? What did we say my agreed performance expectations were? Look for evidence that you can point to of where you've been able to deliver against those expectations. And you should, you should probably do this um, throughout the year so you don't That's forget. That's right. Yeah. Entirely okay. right. You know, keeping yourself a, a journal, for example, a work journal that talks about the, the successes that you experience, but also the challenges you faced. You know, sometimes we actually set an expectation at the start of the year and then a whole bunch of things come along and, and they're very real and we need to turn our attention to them, which makes it difficult for us to achieve some of the objectives that we had agreed to. So yeah. again, another reason to be having regular conversations, but equally why you need to be able to articulate, you know, yeah. what has your, been your reality in this period of time? What has enabled you to be successful and what has stood in your way? Mm. So clearly we need to take very much personal accountability for those obstacles, especially if we didn't put up our hand and say, help, <laughs> you know, this is a problem. But a performance review isn't really therapy, is it? So what are we doing here? Are we yeah. actually just trying to put our best foot forward or yeah. are we showing the reality as your... I, I think it's about being real. And again, yeah. if we treat it as an annual event yeah. and you have no other vehicle through which you influence your boss's perception of you, then yeah, you might feel like you're going into that appraisal having to do a pitch um, yeah. for your right to be seen Paid. in a favourable light. <laughs> and yeah, exactly. Given a pay yeah. rise if you feel that that's what's necessary. So again, that makes it very hit and miss as to whether or not it's going to actually add value in your life. So again, it's when you're having that regular conversation and you're getting the coaching support that you need, that you're really going to get the value from it. And what about thinking about what your boss is on the hook for as well, mm. so you can connect kind of what you're doing to their goals? Absolutely. You know, again, I spend a lot of time coaching people around managing up we're not particularly good at it. And again, um, most bosses, you know, are, are human beings who have their own fears, their own aspirations, their own desires, their own pressures. And so the more we can understand what is it that my manager is expected to deliver on and how does that reflect on the broader team? What is the, the role that I need to play to enable that? And then having conversations with them about that, most leaders are going to have deeper respect for you and gratitude for your awareness of their pressures and, and feel like we're actually in this together. So the performance review has gone swimmingly because we've followed all of your advice, Karen. Excellent. Well done. At the end, should I ask for a raise? If you think that's appropriate, but again, it needs to be backed with reason. So do your research, okay? So one of the mistakes that people make in asking for a pay rise is giving all the personal justifications as to why they need one. You know, I'm struggling to meet rent or I've just had another oh. child or whatever it is. Um, those are not the reasons to put forward. It needs to be about understanding what is the, the job typically likely to pay Yes. And where within that range in your industry do you think you deserve to be paid based on the level of your performance and the level of your experience in that job? Mm. So the more you can do your research, form a view of what you think is a fair and reasonable outcome, and then ask your employer, as I said, to, to at least give it consideration. They're unlikely to give you an answer in that moment. And have you got a story for us, uh, either one performance review that's gone well or a bombing of a performance review? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> Why is it the bombs that always go off in my oh. mind? <laughs> 
first. Um, but absolutely, you know, I, I remember an individual and their manager were quite stressed about the performance review because the manager felt that they were beating their head against a brick wall, to use their words. They felt like they had Ooh. been giving feedback and it wasn't being taken on board and yes. that the person was stuck in a victim mentality, mm. headspace. The individual felt the boss was kidding themselves in terms of how much that they had actually invested in them. Right. They felt that they really watered down the message. They were never direct and straightforward with them. So they lacked that clarity around where do I really stand? So, you know, the, the manager came into that meeting defensive and ready for a fight, as did the individual. And it resulted in tears and people marching out in separate directions. <laughs> yeah, that's a bad performance review. Yeah, it really yeah. didn't work out well yeah. um, because the manager was just as upset because yeah. they felt that, you know, they had been trying their best to help this person. So again, there wasn't the level of maturity required from both parties in that scenario. Mm. Look, the flip side of that is an example of somebody who was appraised as underperforming, um, but they they had felt that their manager had been quite disconnected and probably not in a position to see everything that had been going on with them. And they came into that meeting very well prepared and mm. left the manager saying, look, I think it's evident that I need to go and get some further feedback from other people in the organisation. I don't think that the lens through which I've looked at your performance is the full picture based on today's conversation. So, that is rare that a manager is going to say, let me go and reconsider this. Not great that the manager found themselves in that position, <laughs> but it worked out well because that individual was confident, um, constructive and prepared. People management specialist, Karen Gately. Next week, well-being at work. While yoga classes and fancy furniture might make going to work a little nicer, there's one person who can make the most impact on your well-being and that of your career. Yep, you guessed it your manager. Not just Gallup's research, but other research also has shown that uh, time with the manager is one of the most regretted times of the day, even worse than doing household chores. Jim Harter, Chief Scientist of Workplace and Wellbeing at Gallup, joins us to talk through what has to happen to change workplace culture to enable us to not dread that hour a week and to thrive at work. This Working Life is produced by Maria Tickle. I'm Lisa Leong, and until next week, keep working. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.